Good morning. Welcome to our service. Um, we'll try not to lose these. Um, so we are going to be looking at continuing back into Matthew. It feels like a bit since we've been here, um, but we are going to be looking today at Matthew 5, 38 through 48. And I've entitled this message, The Three Ice Cream Scoops of Matthew 5. And um, really, the three ice cream scoops of how we love and treat people. And we're going to walk through three types of ways that we interact with people. And the last one is going to be the one that Jesus directly addresses in these verses. But before that, we want to look at some of the other commandments on how we interact with other people, because we know that earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So to get that full context, we want to spend um, some time back in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the first two scoops in the Old Testament. And then for the final scoop of ice cream, we're going to be looking in today's um, passage. But I do want to just start out by reading this passage, kind of get our minds working, and then we'll um, work through our three scoops. And children, for the first scoop, I will have you guys come up to the front bench. I have a little object lesson and a story for you guys. So be thinking about that. Be ready to come up here in just a minute or two. So, reading Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he made makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if I love those who love you, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, so we've all read this passage, very familiar passage, um, and Jesus walks through how do we interact with each other, and I really want us, though, to think about two things to put some things in context. The first is love. What is love? 
And unfortunately, I think our English language doesn't do justice to this word. Um, my wife's favorite food seems to be pizza. And if you would ask her, she would say, I love pizza. Why, why does she say that? Well, pizza kind of makes her happy. She, she enjoys pizza. Um, but that's not really the love that Jesus is talking about here. I mean, maybe you have something more going on with pizza than most people do. But for the most part, we use love as a feeling. And Jesus is not using love in this way. The word that it's translated from is agape. And agape has the idea of action associated with love. So for this passage, I want us to think about, and I'll be using the word, trying to use action words more than just using love. But love is associated with an action. It is not a feeling. And so for this time, we want to think about love in that way rather than a warm, mushy feeling. And I unfortunately think it's a reality of our society. We hear a lot of people say, well, just love people and it'll all work out. But we're not really defining what love is and we're not treating love as an action. So that's just kind of a little bit of a setting the stage for this. Um, so the first verse, it says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, resist not the evil person. I'm going to stop there. What is this referring to? Well, if we go back to Exodus 21, 18 through 35, and we are going to spend some time just reading some of these passages to kind of just get their fullness. I, I think it just helps us understand really the context of the Old Testament. Matthew, or, um, Exodus 21, verse 18. Um, and these are just commandments really centered around um, if we are in the wrong, making those wrongs right. And so our first scoop is when we are in the wrong, how do we respond? So Exodus 21, 18. If men contend with each other and one strives, strikes the other with a stone or his fist and he does not die, but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man... I'm going to just skip down a little bit through here. This gets a little bit tedious, but um, moving down to verse 28, if an ox gorges a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tends to thrust with his horn in times of past, and it has been made known to his owner, then he has not kept and has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, then the ox shall be stoned, and its owner should also be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay it to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. 
Whether it has gorged a son or gorged a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gorges a male or female servant, he shall be given his ma their master's 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And if a man opens a pit or a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and the ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make good. He shall give money to the owner, but the dead animal shall be his. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox also shall be divided. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times of past its owner and its owner has not kept it confined, then he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So, this is a long, kind of boring, tedious passage, but the takeaway here is when we're in the wrong, when we, something happens that is, you know, we're at fault, we make it right. And at a very basic level, that is something that we all should be doing. So Jesus is saying in these first verses, I did not come to take away that general, you know, um, relationship. We don't, we aren't, you know, coming to no longer, oh, we're living in the new covenant. We no longer need to make right on wrongs. He's also talking about how we treat those who are, um, who are, who have wronged us and what we expect out of them. But for this um, point, I want to come with there. So, for the first ice cream cone, I want to tell a story from the ice cream shop. If all the kids would come forward on the front two benches, we'll start on this. So, a disclaimer here. These are not real ice cream cones. So I do need a volunteer, but you won't get to eat an ice cream cone. Any volunteers? Um, I know Grayson got to volunteer last Sunday, so let's go with Micah. So this is something that happens, come on up. This is something that happens from time to time at our ice cream shop. I will be serving a customer, they'll come up, and they will pay me, and they'll say, I'd like a scoop of ice cream with sprinkles on it. And I will say, okay, and I'll give them a scoop of ice cream, or one of my team members will give them the scoop of ice cream. And there we go. What do you see on that ice cream? Hair. There's a big hair on that ice cream. <laughs> so m my customer Micah has paid for an ice cream cone, but I'm in the wrong. I've given him an ice cream cone with a big old hair on it. So in this situation, what do I do? What do I do with anybody? This isn't hard. I take off the hair. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think Micah would be very happy with that. No, you can stay up here, Micah. I say, I'm so sorry, Micah. Let me get you a new ice cream cone. And there, Micah has a beautiful ice cream cone that doesn't have a hair on it. And I might even say, and I often would say, 
I'm so sorry you had a bad experience. Here's a coupon for a free ice cream cone the next time you come. So this is an example of what Jesus, or um, what the Old Testament law, go ahead and sit down, Micah, was telling us to do. So the Bible says when we make a mistake, when we do something wrong, we make it right. So how many of you have ever done something that you've had to make right? Can anybody think of a time that that's happened? No? Well, we all have those things happen in our lives. And there's two parts of it that we need to, um, the Bible tells us we need to do. We need to acknowledge that we did something wrong, and then we need to make it right. And for you guys, that might be as small as just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I you know, knocked over my mom's pretty flowers. Or I'm sorry that I wasn't kind to my sibling. But we all have to acknowledge and make it right. You can go back to your parents. And even us adults have to do that. So go ahead. Go back to your parents. And pardon me. I am still struggling a little bit from being sick last week. So... Um, so our first scoop is making restitution when we are in the wrong. And as I told the children, this is something that I think we often um, associate with New Testament, but it's actually an Old Testament principle that still carries through. And one of the things I've been struck with in Matthew is that just the idea of building on that foundation of the Old Testament and building and fulfilling the Old Testament and that it's not taking away, rather it's the fulfillment. And I do think it is a pitfall that we can sometimes fall into with the idea that we no longer, we're free from this. We're not free from it, it's just fulfilling. So, and... And I just, I mean, thinking about in our lives, real-life opportunities that we have. Um, and I, I think about things like, you know, when we're in a fender bender, what is our, you know, what is our, you know, approach to it? It's, I'm sorry, I was in the wrong, and we make it right. And, you know, or our dog bites somebody. Our child destroys something. These are basic situations that always, that do happen to us. And it is a testimony in how we respond to it, but it, it really isn't anything that is more than Old Testament law. So it doesn't actually define Christianity, but it is things that we should be doing and be, behavior we should be, um, we should be um, exhibiting. But Jesus goes on to say, and he brings this up numerous times, but if we think about it, at a basic level, while those around us may not practice this type of behavior all the time, it is a general acknowledgement that this type of behavior is expected and necessary for any functional society. So 
I think, again, we want to be teaching this to our children. Um, we want to be doing it, but it's not setting us apart from the rest of people around us. So, moving on to our second scoop of ice cream. And this is, I think, where many Christians get stuck on showing love to other people. And that is doing kind actions for those in our circles, which ultimately, while may not directly benefit us, make our circles or our groups of people better, whether that's society all around us, our church congregation, um, you know, or even our family unit. But ultimately, it's somewhat self-serving in the sense of, um, you know, it just works better when we're all nice to each other. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says, that even the tax collectors behave this way. You know, they invite each other over for dinner. You know, they're walking through the coffee line and they say, oh, my buddy's behind me, I'll pay for coffee for him. Um, you know, and there's varying degrees of this, but it's not a God-centered response to those around us. And I'll also just want to point out, we often think of these types of actions as New Testament. They're actually not New Testament. Um, the Old Testament has a lot of provisions for this type of action. And I was reading in, and there's a lot of reading we can do in the Old Testament about how Jesus commands those around each other, or, Though, us to treat those around each other in society. And if we turn to Leviticus chapter 19, we can read, we're going to read um, 9 to 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment, nor shall you be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of, mighty, of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor." You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. 
you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This passage is one of many that in the Old Testament that addresses how God told his people to interact with each other. And there's a lot of different things in here, but I wanted to point out the very beginning of the passage where they're commanded to leave a little for the poor people as they're harvesting. So you don't take the corners, you leave that for the poor people. And um, it says the same thing about the vineyards. You're leaving a little. You're doing an act of kindness that you're not directly receiving a benefit for, but it makes your society overall better, and you know the whole thing works better with kind of in mind that you may, in some, at some point in your life, not be as in a, such a fortunate situation, and you may need that. So, and then in another part of the Old Testament, I won't turn to it, it talks about um, how we are, um, he commands, um, well, um, let me get caught up. He commands them to Make sure that they're, wow, I'm blanking on, thought that was in here. Well, we'll move on from that. Um, So we'll move on to my practical example of, in the ice cream shop, of this. Um, So, and this happens from time to time, and that is, we'll have somebody come in, they're bringing their child in for ice cream, and they'll get up to the line, and then they'll all of a sudden look around, and they'll be like, oh, I forgot my wallet. And they'll turn to their little child, and they'll say, son, I'm sorry, we can't get ice cream today. I left my wallet at home. And when that happens, we invariably, if we catch wind of it or something like that, we'll say, oh, don't worry about it. We got you this time. And we'll scoop up a nice pretty cone of ice cream, we'll give it to the kid, and they'll say, well, can I come back and pay you? I'll say, no, don't worry about it. And it makes me feel good, it makes them feel good, and everybody's happy. And little added benefit from them, it makes them very loyal customers. So in a kind of a reverse way, it benefits me. And we're basically doing this thing of doing kind actions for those that are in our circle, and it ultimately is benefiting us. And I totally endorse doing stuff like that. It's great, and it can be a great testimony for the world around us. But the reality is the tax collectors, the drug dealers, whoever it is that is in our society the bad people, they do the same thing that we're doing. So again, we're not setting ourselves apart by this behavior. We're still acting in the Old Testament. And 
I think that's very convicting because often I find myself in that position where I feel like I'm living under that golden rule type mentality, doing to others as you would have them do to you. And while that's a good way to live, it's not that higher calling that Jesus is calling us for. And, but we should continue to do that. And one of the great things I think about is I think about this category of things. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount, most of what we've covered up until now, as far as the way we should behave, still falls under this category of things. It's how do we interact with each other. And an example of this is if we just look back one or two verses, we um, will see Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of a divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So if we even look at this teaching, and if we think back to when we talked about this, one of the things I pointed out was we're really focused on taking an Old Testament teaching a step farther and being, you know, taking it to the reason behind that. And so even the teachings up until now in the, Old Te or in the Sermon on the Mount have really been about our circle and kind of golden rule type teachings. And this chunk of scripture, I think, is the first that really turns our approach to others upside down. And it's above and beyond the golden rule type teaching. And um, so I just want to challenge us as we think about going about our lives today that we, we continue this, this type of interaction. And for our congregation, it will build up um, a better, healthier congregation when we're doing things like, I think about the role that our hospitality um, team or our hospitality committee does in our church. That is an important role. And it's very biblical that we do those things. Um, I think about the families who, you know, we selflessly in many ways serve our family. And those things are important and biblical and do create a healthy church and congregation. But those alone will not propel us toward being like Christ. They aren't the end, the end result. Um, and if we look at verses 46 and 47, I do just want to point out, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what more do you have than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So I know I'm jumping around a little bit. We're going to kind of end up 
with the beginning of this passage, but I just, again, this is where this is coming from. It's not that we don't do this, but in and of itself, it's just like the world around us. So I have kind of an example of why do we need this foundation? And I think it prepares us when we are you know, making things right when we're wrong, and then when we're, kind of, when we're actively pursuing caring for those around us, even in our circles, it prepares us for being able to do something that is so unnatural, and that is caring for those who are actively unloving toward us or actively harming for us, to us. And an example of this that I will give you is this week, um, the NCAA, the College um, Athletic Association, the men's volleyball championship happened to be in um, George Ma at George Mason. They weren't playing, but they hosted it. And the two best teams in the nation, with, um, which were UCLA and Hawaii, were there um, competing in this. And I had the opportunity to, um, to watch it. And it's just amazing watching these athletes warming up. It's always fun to see they're warming up. These guys jump. They can probably jump higher. They can touch higher than the ceiling. It's, it's just unbelievable. And in warm-ups, they jump up and they spike, spike the volleyballs down and they bounce up and hit the ceiling. And they have 20 players on each team and they're all doing it. And you look at this and you're like, how are these guys not all just starting on the team, but only six players start? And the funny thing is, they're doing this in warm-ups, but in the game, it's a whole different matter. They're not able to do the same thing in warm-ups. The six guys who start can, but the other guys who are all looking great in warm-ups, when it's game time, can't perform. They can't quite run with, run with the rest of them. But they all have to be able to do that to even be thought about being on the court. Well, I think this is a little bit like I view these first two things these are our warm-ups for being able to play the game, to be able to really be like Jesus and to be a little bit more, um, to draw closer to God. So it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter that we do these things. We still have to be able to do them, but it doesn't mean that we're there yet. We have to continue to press on to be able to do our final um, calling. So scoop three, and that is giving when you are not obligated or expected to, and the person you are giving to has already wronged you. And I'm just challenged with this, and I have a final ice cream cone story that, um, we don't really want that one. But, well, there. We'll just pull the hair off of that one. Um, 
So I have a final ice cream cone story, and this is a story that happened to me. And I, when I was thinking through my life of times that I could really share a story where I've been able to respond this way, it's kind of, maybe I just don't look for them that much, but it's kind of most of the way, times that I respond in the right way are kind of scoop two situations. Um, so one day I was working and an old, really grumpy man came up. And he came up and he said, can I get an ice cream cone? And I said, yes, sir. What kind of ice cream would you want? Well, your butter pecan doesn't look like it has any nuts in it, so I wouldn't want that. Well, can I try your salted caramel? So I give him a try of salted caramel, and he says, well, that's not a very good sample. And it kind of goes on like this. And it's back and forth, and then he's like, well, how much is a scoop? It's like, it's 575. Well, that's not a very big scoop. Well, sir, that's the size we do. So we go back and forth like this, and finally we settled on a flavor. We settled that he was getting a cone, and we get up to the register, and he says, well, I'm not, um, I don't have any money. And I said, I've scooped the cone already. There's people kind of looking around. So I said, well, sir, that's okay. I got you today. I still am kind of feeling like I'm in this scoop two situation. You know, it's, it's better for me to behave this way than cause a scene and, you know, who knows. So, well, it doesn't stop there. He says, takes a bite of the ice cream and goes, well, that's not very good. I want butter pecan. <laughs> and I am just... I'm at the point, I'm like, well, you didn't have money to pay for this. Be happy with what you've got and move on. And then I was like, I don't know what's going on that somebody is this nasty, but I'm just going to try to do whatever I can to brighten this guy's day up. So I scoop him a scoop of butter pecan. And then I hand it to him, and he goes, well, I wanted a waffle cone with my butter pecan. <laughs> at this point... I am about ready to bust a gasket, but I'm just like, okay, I'm going to push forward here. So I get him a waffle cone. We send him on his way. Um, it, and quite honestly, I didn't leave with any warm, funny, fuzzy feelings like that. When I gave that little two-year-old his free ice cream cone because his mom forgot his wallets, I felt good about myself. I had no fuzzy feelings. I was completely in the right in at any point in that conversation saying, I'm sorry, buddy, you need to move on. And these are the situations that Jesus is referring to. When we have the power to say no, but rather we say yes in a sacrificial way. And I tell that story, and it's a very small thing. Um, it's not a defining, earth-shattering moment. And I also tell that story to my own chagrin in the fact that 
I had to think really hard to come up with a time in my life where I behaved like this. So, um, so I want to take a little bit of time and unpack what this type of love looks like. And it is an action. It is action-packed. Um, in verse 39, it says, But I say, tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. There's an action there. It takes work. It's not going to be a passive thing. We, I think the one detriment that the Quakers have done to our society is this idea of pacifism along with Christianity. Christianity is not a passive. Non-resistance is not passive. Um, and I also want to just point out, in Proverbs 25, um, I was challenged that sometimes I think about, you know, this mentality being completely New Testament. But Proverbs 25 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So, again, not there's allusions to this character of God being exhibited in the Old Testament, but it is a New Testament principle. Um, and then I also um, want to just think about some examples of this, and ultimately one of the examples that I think of immediately is modeling our life after Jesus. And Luke shares the story of Jesus, and it's a familiar story, um, Luke 22, um, 22, 49. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed it. So a very clear example of how Jesus, when he was being persecuted, responded to those who was persecuting him and also instructed those around him not to, not to retaliate for him. This type of action defines Christianity and sets us apart as a, and is modeled by none other than Jesus himself. And I also think about examples in history of people who have responded this way. And a couple that just come to mind is, you know, as we think of history kind of progressing forward, the picture of Dirk Williams. I think we all know that story. We've seen that picture of the man being escaping from prison, running across ice, falling, um, and the person pursuing him falls in the ice, and he turns around, and he's leaning over, helping the man out. It's a, and then we know how that story ended. Dirk Williams was, um, was martyred for his faith. And, you know, those stories grab us. They, they kind of rivet society around us. Um, they make us stand out. I think of a story of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, 
someone burned a cross in his yard. And when he came outside um, in the morning, picked up the pieces of the cross, and he prayed for those who did it. And his prayer was not about, Lord, convict them to get them to stop doing it. No, it was that they would be blessed. Lord, show your blessing upon them. Um, and I don't know the exact words he said, but it was, was about showing favor to those who harmed him. And then I also think in our more recent history of the shootings in Nickel Mine in, um, among the Amish community, and the testimony that was when they, in the way that they responded to those that hurt them. And this type of love is the love that is action-based, that will stand out. And in conclusion, I want to ask one question, and that is, why should we do this? So we know that it stands out to those around us. Jesus gives us his um, insight into this. In verse 45, he says, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. And Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the character of God. And part of the character of God is this attribute of showing love to people whether they deserve it or not. And the example that he gives is drive down the road. We can't look at a farm with luscious fields and say, well, that's a godly farmer. And then we can't see a farm that's all withered and dried up and say, well, he must ascend. God doesn't operate that way. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And we are to be like him. And the idea of sons of your father in heaven, you know, as sons, we want to be like our father, and we do things to become like our father. And so modeling this behavior will make us more and more like our father who is in heaven. And 48 leaves us with that challenge, and I'm just going to close with those words. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And I would challenge us all as we go through our life or our days in the weeks to come and as we model our lives, how are we becoming perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect? Are we loving with action both in all three of those scoops, but most importantly in that final idea of loving those who don't show us love, and then going above and beyond in every way we can. Thank you, and I'll turn the time back over to Dave.